like the drawing, it almost doesn't really matter what it looks like. It's the experience of you were sitting there watching this tree or watching this building for a couple hours and you saw people walking in and out of it. You saw birds land on it. You know, it, it, it makes you interact in a slowness. Hello and welcome to the new episode of the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. This is part two of my conversation with Cincinnati-based artist and illustrator Christina Wald. In the previous episode, we spoke about Christina's extensive Kickstarter experience and the fascinating journey to be an artist and illustrator in the changing landscape of the last three decades. In this episode, we continue the conversation about how to live, sustain, and thrive as independent artists. We talk about Kickstarter, Patreon, how Christina came to urban sketching and started a new chapter in Cincinnati. We also discuss our anticipations from the near future and some good ideas about how to keep the creative process at the heart of everything you do. If the business of being an artist sometimes gets you down, This episode is for you. The democratic power of the internet is that anyone can produce and share their work without intermediaries, directly with the people who want to see it. It allows me to share this episode, for which I do all the work myself, directly with you. I like having this job. From booking guests to dreaming up questions, from conducting these conversations to editing and producing the final product, I do all of it myself and it is only possible for me to continue giving it the time and attention it needs because of the other end of the democratic power of the internet. Your freedom as a consumer to support the kind of content you like. Supporting my work as a sneaky art insider, for example, brings you into the circle of super listeners who give me the mandate to chase my curiosity with every conversation and produce my best work. That is one of the reasons why I make this podcast, the desire to share my best ideas without putting it through the filter of social media. On podcast apps, every episode is as long as it needs to be. If you are listening, it is because you chose to do so. We are in a consensual equation as speaker and listener. And I think this is also what the internet is all about. I hope you enjoy this episode. Do you see yourself doing uh, starters more frequently? Um, I don't know if I do them like every month, but maybe a couple of year might be. I mean, in, unless something, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to commit to that in case there's something else. But I think right now it's, it's, a, it's a decent way to kind of fund these projects that are just yours um, and that you have, um, you know, that you initiate yourself. Um, I, I, I think that the whole thing we were talking about vanity publishing before, I think that that's going to go probably away because I don't think that these industries are going to, I don't think, I'm not sure any industry is going to be the same as what we've grown up with just because of the way things are changing. And I don't know what it's going to change into, but, um, it feels like, like this ample world of product that we live in by necessity has to change, but I don't know what it's going to turn into. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about your experience with Patreon. Um, you know, I'm still kind of learning about it. It was, it was helpful, um, in initiating this book. I kind of did a test run on a little cartoon I was doing, and I actually just closed that Patreon just because I didn't have time to do my cartoon for it every week. And I decided to make it a Facebook group where it was kind of more of like a community. But again, I think that these are all good ways to sort of extricate yourself from a world where you only have to live on client work. Right. And that's for a couple of reasons, because I think that the world of how clients approach getting illustration is going to change. It already has changed. And so I think that more and more, 
you can do your own ideas and projects and collaborations without having this giant corporate structure that we're describing it. And so I think that that Patreon helps with that. Like, so if you wanted to do Patreon, like you would say, like, if you pay at this level, you get a print every three months or whatever, you know, there's, there's ways you can structure it, that it ends up supporting your art career. And I mean, I think the biggest thing that's hardest when you're wanting to do this exclusively for a living, and I think it's hard to describe to people that don't live in a freelance environment is you don't have a paycheck that comes every month or every two weeks or whatever you have to plan to pay but your bills every month come and so I think the reason why Patreon became a thing is that it's a way to get some money in every month that helps pay your bills because that's probably the biggest hurdle getting started is getting enough revenue stream to cover all of your bills and in a way, that's also a thing that's hard when you, you ask me when kids are starting out, like, what's the what's the most important thing that they don't know? And it's just having to keep this revenue stream going. And it's not like you're just doing this for a week or a year. It's, well, in my case, 30 plus years. And so you have to get enough work to pay for. and you have to get enough work to pay for your life. And I'm not talking about living extravagantly, but just paying your bills, electricity and food and all of that sort of thing. I mean, you're trying to make a living with this. And that's the one thing when you're not working for a company that has traditionally been what sustained you. Now, I think having a company that sustains you like this is probably a fairly temporary thing that's happened in the 20th century with the industrial revolution but it feels like it's now sort of morphing into something else and i don't know what that is but if you're starting as a and you want to make a living off your art you start thinking about what are ways to get money in and you know people there's people that appreciate your work and want to support it and you don't necessarily need thousands of people you know sometimes it's just you might be making you know 50 or $60 a month from your Patreon. I mean, at least, but it's something that helps, you know, get some consistent money in. Yeah. And I think anything more than zero, it, uh, it validates hard work. Yes. Like you can, you can see that as like, if like, this is what I tell myself, if you can have 10 people supporting your work, exactly. then there are a hundred people who want to support your work. You just haven't reached so many people to find those other 90. But there's a proof of concept there. If there are 10 strangers or 20 strangers who are willing yes. to to be your patrons. I, I think that's true. And I think there's going to be more and more platforms like this um, that help people support their writing or their... I mean, Patreon, I think, was actually started for bands, like mm -hmm. people that create music. And right. because there is so... I mean, and it's... Music is kind of an analogous um, career, too, where you're creating content and you're trying to sell it. And I don't know who gets a worse deal from big corporations. I mean, probably musicians, because, you know, you think about Spotify and how much people get per play or whatever. So these people have to pay their bills, too. And it's really easy to kind of look at art and a career of art as being something that's just a hobby. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with it being a hobby. I mean, you know, I fully advocate people doing stuff that's not for monetization, but if you are wanting to make a living as an illustrator, it is a grind that you will be doing for as long as you have a career. Let's segue. Um, mm -hmm. we've, we've spoken about your path as an illustrator. We've spoken about the business of education. We've also spoken about Kickstarter and the business of selling art. Now, one thing I'm really fascinated by is your discovery of urban sketching. Because, you know, like I found urban sketching at a very important juncture in my life. I had no plans to be an artist or really an illustrator. I was making these very basic stick figure comics and I was writing and I wanted to be a better writer. 
and to me comics were just another medium by which to tell stories it was writing in another form just like poetry just like flash fiction mm-hmm. so i thought uh, now that i had committed i had committed to becoming a full time creative and i decided if i'm going to do this full time i need to be able to draw a little bit better and so i started trying to educate myself in art and i tried all these different things and in the process of trying a dozen different things i found that there is something called urban sketching and it just happened to suit me so well uh, it's it happened to uh, resonate with so many of my interests at the time i was living in chicago and i was very eager to discover this great city and to explore it and exploring it with a sketchbook seemed really really convenient so you're already an artist you're an illustrator at this point with two decades of work behind you you do a lot of art all day tell me at this point how did urban sketching appeal to you what did it have to offer that you felt that you needed well i think the biggest thing is i love the manifesto and i love that it's sort of whatever level you are it's a way to me almost a mindful type of artwork where you're taking in the world around you and to actually slow down and look at the world and draw it i think there's something really enjoyable about that i also love doing artwork with no intention of having someone buy it or giving it to someone you know i just do it for fun and it's sort of a way for me to play like my sketchbooks are a way for me to play without having to worry about does this get approved it's just something that's my flight of fancy or that just wherever i am and that's something that i really love it it it's very relaxing for me because i think so much of the stuff that i do can be very time consuming and it helps you love drawing because i love the immediacy of quick drawing and sketching mm-hmm. and capturing something quickly i mean that's kind of what the whole book about is capturing stuff quickly more than you know just sitting down and making an illustration of a house where you like have a straight edge and you try to reproduce it very accurately and i love i'm a, i'm a bit of a travel addict too so i i love to travel and meet other people and being able to draw with them is sort of a bonus that's above like most of the time when you meet people it's to do something like go get food or go out and it's a way to take in the world around you especially if you're traveling if you're sketching with sketchers around there they're showing off where they live in their city and you find out so much about it i mean that was one of the thing i just did an article for drawing attention about romania um and i'd been wanting to take a group of sketchers there for years and we sketched with urban sketchers bucharest and they couldn't have been nicer they were so fun and it was really a great way to break the ice and meet people that were there yeah yeah uh, how how did you happen to discover urban sketchers where, where was this discovery and tell me a little bit about these first meetups that you joined well we started our chapter here and um apparently there was actually a chapter before we started our chapter and it had disbanded a friend of mine does a sketch workshop in Taos, New Mexico every year and so i went to her workshop in 2012 and so i peripherally became aware of the urban sketchers there in my town already every week a group of illustrators meet and have lunch and we show what we're working on and so i had already been kind of involved in some social aspects of illustration in town and i just love the idea of just rather than showing art you're just doing art yeah yeah and you know the idea of starting an urban sketching chapter this is also a very interesting thing because you know there are people uh, and some of them are listening to us right now like there are people all over the world who and in your case you were quite connected with the illustration scene in your city but there are people all over the world who live in cities who are urban sketchers and who are involved only online only through maybe the facebook group only through following certain urban sketchers uh, who give them quote unquote permission to also go out and sketch their city their town their part of the world and they don't have a community yet around it and mm-hmm. i think it's such a brave step although it's so rewarding but it still takes a lot of courage to start a chapter to start a community so uh could you talk a little bit about just just doing this like in order to give someone out there who maybe doesn't have an urban sketching chapter in their city in their town 
to give them some ideas for what they should do to get moving, to get, you know, people together and build a community? That's a good question because actually who really helped us was Chicago. I had gone to a couple of, I mean, Chicago has their urban sketching seminars. Um, I don't know if you've been to any of them when you lived there. I have, yes. And so I went to the one, I think it was in 2014. And they were really supportive in starting a new chapter. And I went to the symposium in 2017 in Chicago. And so I just went online. There was a group of people in Cincinnati that I sketched with regularly. And so we just filled out the paperwork. I went ahead and filled it out. And I had several people that I sketched with that agreed to be admins. And our admin group keeps growing. I think there's six of us now. And we've tried to keep it really open so that pe- so it keeps growing. I think the hardest thing when you're doing any kind of group like this is keeping it growing and keeping people coming. And you want to make it so it's not too attached to whoever started it or it won't thrive because, right. you know, even within those six admins, we're all different. We're all busy at different times. And so... Right we have enough people to kind of cover doing events for everything and making sure that the community keeps going. And I think that that's part of the aspect that, I mean, one thing that's great is when you, you know, first thing you can do is start a Facebook group even before you're a true and get attention that way. Like if you start an urban sketchers group of wherever your city is, that a lot of people have joined our group because they just did a Google search and they moved to Cincinnati and said, oh, I want to start sketching with them. Actually, we just had someone from Chicago that just moved to Cincinnati to teach here and he started sketching with us. And I think, it, again, it's like, almost like getting your portfolio scene. It's just having some sort of community where it's visible for other people to find it. Yeah. And if that's important to you in your, and I, I think that it's a worthy, I think, there's a lot of art clubs in every big city. Um, you know, Cincinnati has a couple of robust ones. And I think the big appeal that I like also about urban sketching is that, you know, to sketch with your group, there's no fee. It's, it's sort of you kind of show up for what you want to do and then leave. And I think that there's a lot of appeal to young people for that, too, because in the way things are now, a lot of people don't necessarily have a lot of extra income to throw around either to join a club that has membership fees. And right. like even the Society of Illustrators is in New York City is quite expensive to join each year uh, when you think about being a member of these communities. And so this is a community that re- all you need is a sketchbook. And I think that there's something really cool about that. Yeah. And the idea that you can join it without, like, I mean, you would join the Society of Illustrators only if you were professionally committed to being exactly. an illustrator. But the idea that you could join Urban Sketchers without having any professional or uh, full-time aspirations, keeping it as a leisure activity, as something that's just a hobby for your free time, and you can still be part of a community in which people are using it in that way. And there are people who are using it in more serious, committed ways. I think about the urban sketching group we have here in Vancouver in Canada, where I live now. And there's a lot of uh, new members at every meetup. And a lot of it is like you described, like a lot of people who were just browsing through the app, who were looking for some kind of connection with relation Mm -hmm. to their hobbies. And this is one of the sketching or art related groups that they found. And they just happened to join for a meetup to find out what this is all about. Not Mm -hmm. people who already knew that they were seeking urban sketchers or urban sketching or that this is a global uh, community with hundreds of thousands of people. None of those ideas were already there. They simply wanted to draw or paint and they wanted to do it with other people or they wanted to engage with other people who do this. There are so many people that love art and love drawing that never did it as a career and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think that like with music too. I actually recently told my husband, you know, I, I kind of wish I played a musical instrument or, and he said, like, you need more to do. And I, I said, well, I think that that's one thing that I, I, I think that it's good to do stuff that you're not proficient in, but just do it for fun. Like, like learn to play an instrument or learn to sing, even if you sing terribly or, you know, I think that there's a lot of things that you know, perhaps our society's lost. There's this sort of attitude that if you're not good at something, 
you shouldn't do it at all. And I think that that's a industrial revolution sort of thing that you, you shouldn't do it if you don't do it well. You shouldn't. And, and that's yeah. ridiculous. I feel like that's also an attitude that is imbibed more as, you know, more and more as you grow older, that mm-hmm. I should only be doing the things that I'm quote unquote good at. Um, so when I think of my what it what it took for me to actually become an artist who people wanted to buy whose art, mm-hmm. uh, like I had to I I think of this as a way of rediscovering the child like joy. Like exactly. I had to think like a child, and I describe it on my newsletter as the difference between being uh, results oriented and process oriented. And uh, as a writer, I find that I only get joy from my writing after having written. But art is this thing that no matter your proficiency, no matter your skill level, you mm-hmm. enjoy the process of making it. Every stroke, every brush stroke, every pen stroke, it's a joy to do. And you can take that experience of making art as a fruitful activity, as a fun activity, regardless of what your final result is, whether you think you did a good drawing or whether you think it was absolutely terrible and you feel like ripping your page off. You still get that, you can still get that joy from those uh, minutes and hours that you spend on it. So it's, uh, art has helped me reappreciate this idea that you can do something just to get the joy from it, regardless of how good you are at it. And like to your point, like I feel it's so important to, to enjoy being an amateur, to do things that you know you're bad at. You don't have lofty goals with them but you just enjoy the process of climbing a ladder of skills or getting better at it or knowing that you're bad at it, but finding a reason to do it beyond proficiency. And I think that there's an appeal to, I mean, what one thing that I love about urban sketching and sketching on location is that it's, it's a way to observe stuff where you are that you never would normally observe. Like most of the time, like if you're in a coffee shop, every, like you just said, everyone's looking at their phones or, you're sitting outside and people are very curious when you're sketching because they're like, why would somebody be doing this when they could be doing something else? <laughs> and I, I think that it's because it almost feels, it, it's such a weird activity. And and I think that it's a way to kind of, there's something mindful about it. You're kind of communing with the, the, the space around you. And yeah. it's not just like the drawing is almost a byproduct of yeah. the whole experience. And I try to kind of approach it that way. Like the drawing, it almost doesn't really matter what it looks like. It's the experience of you are sitting there watching this tree or watching this building for a couple hours and you saw people walking in and out of it. You saw birds land on it. You, you know, it, it, it makes you interact in a slowness. I mean, even though you're sketching quickly, it kind of, you're paying, the, the attention you're paying is actually slow. So it's sort of a paradox. Like, even though one encourages getting it down quickly and sketching quickly, the paradox is that you're actually slowly looking at it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we really need it, like, so much, like, our devices and our attitudes towards productivity and efficiency. And again, you know, doing what you're good at. All of this takes away from just being present in a place, like, when you see people uh, listening to music or just on their phones on the subway or at cafes, you're seeing a lot of people choosing to be inside their bubbles mm-hmm. and not like using sound as a way to shield from the outside world, using the screen as a way to only look at one particular thing and not look at the things around them. And those are very conscious decisions that, I mean, they're not really conscious decisions. They're very consequential decisions that we have sort of taken as a way of life. This is how it is. This is what is done. And Mm -hmm. so much of it is done for organic reasons, but so much of it is also simply imbibed from the world around us. You see, this is how people behave in cafes. So this is how you behave in cafes. So when I was in Chicago and then we moved to rural Wisconsin, I felt grossly out of place. I felt like, this is not a world in which I, brown guy with a beard from India, belongs to. And I did not quite give myself permission to occupy certain urban spaces. Mm-hmm. But having a sketchbook then, and to your point about the, the art being a byproduct or sort of being an excuse to look, 
having a sketchbook gave me that permission that I'm allowed to sit here because I'm just trying to draw this tree or I'm just trying to draw this cafe. And as a result, I'm paying attention to this foreign environment in which I'm not comfortable otherwise. Mm-hmm. But the act of giving attention and giving time makes me comfortable, makes me feel like I have a right to belong here. And this become this became my way of sort of finding home in a place that was so alien to me. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that, it, that is, a, it, it's sort of a social, I don't want to say it's a social lubricant because that's probably not the right word, but it's, it, it does, it does sort of let you remain in a place that you wouldn't normally, people might look at you funny if you were just sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> and as a, as a traveler, like you, you mentioned sketching when you travel and as a traveler, it's such a deep experience of a foreign place where already so many things are overwhelming and so many things are new and mm-hmm. you have limited time. But the knowledge that you can allow yourself to sit in one spot for half an hour or even an hour, is it, it's so empowering to do that. Yeah, I think with travel especially, it's, it's a way to, it's, an, it's just another way to take in what you're doing and take in what you're seeing and observe it in a way that you wouldn't necessarily I mean even when you're at a museum looking at stuff like I feel like you don't retain it that much I mean, you sort of zoom through but when you like sit down and actually take it in for a while like more aspects of it become apparent and yeah speaking of AI I mean I have a friend that when I was kickstarting my book he was he was like you know if you did these in AI you could do a ton of sketches and I said well that kind of bypasses the point of why I do them I said <laughs> I don't do them so I make more of them I do them because it's the process and it's the, the enjoyable yeah. process of of just you know doing whatever you want it's kind of a playground you're you're just playing with different materials you're not really that worried you're trying to observe it's all of that stuff would go away if you use if you manufactured it in a different way and I don't even like the word manufacture because that's not the whole point is that it's sort of a almost a flow type situation. Yeah. And, you know, this is such a great point. Like I've put it in uh, similar words before that the obsession around, especially around AI art, because I see a lot of uh, value in implementation of AI in writing and in different ways, uh, different types of writing, especially formal writing and letter writing and things, emails and things like that, as someone who does not like to write emails. <laughs> but uh in art, it sort of defeats exactly this purpose. It's being pushed by people who are vociferously results-oriented and do not want anything to do with the process. And I think that betrays a very fundamental, the most fundamental reason why, as humans, we make art. Mm-hmm. The exercise of making art and not simply the result of having made it and then obsessing over financial value and monetization and these are these are things that come afterwards and they are so ancillary to the to what the real reason is to do it mm-hmm. and an obsession with these ends it it overlooks all of these things it uh, it kicks aside these ideas of mindfulness of paying attention and it makes us less human and more machine like and it's the most it's pro- probably the most depressing thing that i've heard about ai art from so many people that you know you can make thousands in one click well and then how much do you take in about these thousand images i mean when you paint something you remember like even if it's not a sketch like even when i am illustrating i remember a lot of the ambient stuff that was going like if i'm listening to an audiobook oh i remember listening to this audiobook when i was painting the speak or whatever the, the actual process of the making is super important like i think about now you know with social media and how it has invaded our brains and what urban sketching does for me is that it becomes this very pure thing in which the one or two hours that I spend drawing, I am absolutely not thinking about anybody else. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm not thinking about shareability. I'm not thinking about what somebody might think of it. And this is something that, again, that's taken away if production is just one click, if it's just generated you have completely, like, you are surrendering yourself in exchange for this externalization or this 
like thinking about how it will be received and what kind of product it will make and therefore how other people will receive this product. And you've externalized this whole beautiful thing which can be all about you and you've given it up to other people. Again, another way that social media is one aspect but AI art tends to become another aspect in which you let all of these other things into your mind that are not you. Definitely with that, because even no matter how good your prompt is or whatever, it is, it is, there's a lot of detail to it that has nothing, you had nothing to do with the creation in a lot of ways. And I, I don't know if, if the word perhaps authenticity is, I'm not sure what the best way to describe it. And it will definitely have its place. But I think if people are afraid it's going to keep them from making art, nothing is going to keep you from doing that. And to me, like where you described, like I'm terrible about like, and that's bad when we're doing events because people will text you and say, where is everybody? And I don't even think to look at my phone till I'm finished. And it's like, oh, I got a message two hours ago. Somebody's yeah. saying, where are you? But I think that one of the things that's difficult is that is, is getting so caught up in the experience of posting. It gets away from the experience of living. And a lot of people have complained. It's less of an experience for you when you're trying to document everything, the need to document things. And it'll be interesting to see if that continues to be prominent in the future. Yeah, like uh, there was this time recently where my phone died while I was on my way to draw somewhere. And this absolutely revolting, terrible thought came to my mind. I thought, what's the point of drawing? I'm not going to be able to share it. And I, like the moment I thought it, I thought this is just the most awful thing I could have thought. Like, how could this thought even come to me? But it did. Like, it, it's such a deep. So, and especially when you're so over the last three months, my Instagram audience has very suddenly exploded. So I have this big audience now. And it took me five years to come up to a small point. And now I have several times that audience just over the last three, four months. And in a way, I had learned to neglect this audience. I had contented myself with, okay, I have a small niche audience and therefore I only do what I want to do. And what a big audience has done to me is that, again, it has sucked me back in. Like Instagram, evil Instagram has pulled me back into its clutches that now again I'm thinking about what does my audience want? How do I, uh, how do I make it more popular? How can I make it grow even bigger? And mm -hmm. these are such poisonous thoughts because I am letting other people and my idea of other people define what I should do. Whereas those other people are also hoping that I will show them something that I want to do. And we're both almost running around in a circle, each trying to chase the other person. And it's so harmful what, uh, what these numbers do to us. It's so important to be able to ignore these numbers. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to work independently, you're going to have to have some kind of an active presence. And one of the most regular conversations I have with independent artists, illustrators, urban sketchers is just this, that how do you balance making reels and making posts with just staying in the moment and just making art? What's that debate like for you? Well, I think that, I mean, I think it definitely is something that probably ends up in people's minds more than it should, because it, again, I think that it's sort of a paradox because probably the more you worry about it, the the more difficult it is. And, and I don't know what the answer is because I, my biggest feeling about it is that I think it's almost going to be temporary, but I don't know what it's going to be replaced with. I mean, I try not to worry about it too much because I don't, if you look at my Instagram feed, it's not consistent at all. I just post whatever I'm doing and I have a lot of interests. There's a lot of stuff I like to do and I don't really worry too much about if it all looks like the same stuff, but it's easy to fall into that trap. And I think that it plagues a lot of artists. And the thing that I've, I think that's the most deceptive about social media is that it ends up like the large following is not necessarily making it that much easier to make a good living. Right. Um, Absolutely. Um, it, it was actually interesting. And, and this is sort of a 
um, I don't know, maybe not art related, but I, I heard a comparison the other day. I was listening to, and you've probably read Cory Doctorow's stuff. He's mm -hmm. a science fiction writer. He was describing social media as being like one of those claw machines at, or being at a carnival where somebody's carrying a big bear and everybody wants the big bear. And I was like, that's kind of an interesting comparison to think <laughs> about social media. Like everybody's like, oh, that guy's carrying a big bear around that he won in one of the, and, and, you know, most people that are posting are not going to get to that level. And even if you do, the way they're structuring the company, they're not making it that easy for them to make money off of it. Like yeah. they consciously suppress so that you might have, you know, X amount of followers, but only 10% or 5% see what you've posted. Absolutely. Yes. When everybody that followed you probably wants to see it. Yeah. Like, I, I think that's the, like, this is the big deception of social media. I absolutely agree that you go into it thinking this is a logical system that I'm going to put in the work, I'm going to make beautiful art, and then people who like beautiful art are going to sign up to follow me, and then onwards I will post and they will see it. And this is absolutely not what happens because in all kinds of artificial ways, this algorithm is squeezing you for money. Now it starts to demand that you pay it so that your work reaches the people who have already signed up voluntarily to see it. And mm -hmm. why something succeeds, why another thing does not, there are no logical uh, reasons here. You cannot say that you did something objectively wrong or you failed to tick this and this box and that's why your post didn't make it or didn't reach its audience. These are illogical things and they are artificial things and they cause a lot of they cause a lot of headache and a lot of frustration and a lot of existential crises for artists and illustrators but you know we were talking about uh, how you with your students in your own practice especially as an independent artist i feel like there is a responsibility towards the business aspect of art so yes. does does that clash then with you know the need to be away from social media what what responsibility does the independent artist as an independent business person have towards their social media accounts? And if it is something that you see as transient, what is the what are the things that they should be looking forward towards away from social media? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I teach is because there are so many people that I have known over the years that either get burnt out on illustration, you know, having illustration as a career or any type of creative having it as a career where you've worked in it for 30 years is a very different experience from someone first getting on social media and maybe building up a huge following. And one thing that I have learned from looking at different artists that do different types of art, actually I have a really funny anecdote because I have an illustrator friend that was at a show in Chicago and he said that he was chatting with the artist and some other people came up and he said, they said, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm an illustrator. And they said, oh, really? Do you make a living at it? And he said, oh, yeah, I've been doing it for him. Mean, he's a little bit older than me. And they were like, what? You make a living off illustration? And he said, a crowd started to form. <laughs> and, and they started asking questions. And I think that that is a good anecdote that shows kind of how a lot of people like getting the following and doing the social media stuff gets you followers, but it doesn't get you money. You know, and that's where the business comes in. And I, I try to give a good message to artists because I think so many of them are told that, you know, illustration is dying. I mean, I've been, since I started, people have said, you know, this is a dying career. People aren't going to be able to do this anymore. Every couple of years, like there's some new caveat in people. And I think what's happening and speaking apart from art, I think what a lot of artists don't realize is it's not just art that's going through these transitions. As a, my husband's a mechanical engineer. The way he does business is very different from, you know, he started at a big corporation and he went out on his own in the mid nineties. And I don't think that that experience is much different from my experience. He's not an artist. Yeah. I mean, he does problem solving and what he does is an art form unto itself. But mm -hmm. what I mean is that all the way everything is happening 
career-wise is changing. And I think that that's why there's a lot of upheaval, like the way people used to make a living in the 60s building cars. Mm -hmm. I mean, all those jobs have gone away. And so I think that you're seeing this sort of evolution of how people get money. And that could be a whole different discussion on how are people going to survive and make money because not everybody's an entrepreneur. And yeah, really, as an illustrator now, you have to be an entrepreneur. And I think people used to kind of get around that by having an agent. And, you know, I could do a whole show on things I've seen working as an art director, working with agents and working with yeah. other illustrators and their experiences with agents that... I mean, it's, that's not for everyone either. Like a lot of people that I know that have agents don't get enough work to make a living, but everybody should not feel pessimistic either. Like, I think the biggest thing is to keep your eyes open and learn and see what works best. I yeah. mean, it's kind of like a game of survivor, really. I, mean, I think any <laughs> career is, I mean, anyone that survives what they used to say, people change their career every seven years or something like that. And I think it's because people just at some point want to have a clean slate. And so when you get to this point, when you've been working in the career so long, you end up being sort of an oddity because people are like, really, you've been doing this for 30 years? Yeah, I think I think that uh, ex natural expiry is an, a natural expiration date is an interesting concept because what it alludes to is things like uh, an evolving person, a changing skill set things mm -hmm. you're not able to do any longer and things you're suddenly able to do that you couldn't do before. Uh, hours, maybe. Hours that you're not able to give any longer and hours that you want to now use which are different. Mm -hmm. And also, the people that you see as your market or your clients or your network and how that changes over time and then you sort of pivot to provide a service in it in a different mm -hmm. way. Like, I had no plans to make a podcast, but the pandemic did that to me. Yes. I had to start. I felt like I had to start it. And now there are so many people who know me for a podcast. And this is one of the major things that I offer as an independent person trying to make his living in this crazy world that we are in. The podcast is one of my big offerings and it gets me a lot back. But this was not a plan. This is something mm -hmm. that circumstances have pushed me into and then I pivoted to accommodate and then suddenly things happened from things happening. And I think that's kind of the way any career is. I mean, it's sort of that old saying where they say life is what happens when you're making plans. <laughs> and I, I think that that's the thing that's hardest. I mean, starting an art career, I mean, one could credibly argue, do you even need to go to school for art? And I mean, for example, YouTube is a huge resource for learning how to use, say, Photoshop. I taught myself After Effects a few years ago because I've been doing a lot of video editing. And I didn't take a class for it. I just started watching a bunch of YouTube videos. And, you know, kind of now, if you want to do, if you want to do that graphic novel and your dream is to do comics, do you go to school in a program that teaches you how to do comics? Or do you get that book about Eisner and, and read it and just start drawing. I mean, but the key, I think a lot of people feel like they like that structure of education to make them have deadlines and make them actually create work. I mean, I always tell my students that you're not doing anything for me. I don't really care what you do. I mean, I'm not your audience. You're trying to get work for later. And if you don't do your best work. It doesn't hurt me. I don't really care. I mean, all that matters is that you're getting where you need to go with your work. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, we, yeah, we definitely need a more purposeful uh, approach towards education. And I mean, institutional education as well as self-education. I definitely do. I like, I have put in so much self-learning because I studied to be a mechanical engineer. So all of my creative work has been on the side and it has come from learning for free on the internet. For free meaning I have given so much time though, so many evenings <laughs> and so many hours of watching YouTube and doing things. But uh, the this knowledge is becoming more easy to acquire. What we do with it is becoming more complicated because there are so many things to do and there are so many directions to move in. And 
you know, like what something you mentioned a little while back, you said uh, people who start off with, say, Patreon, and they start off with uh, offering certain things that they'll do every week or every month. And then they're not able to stick with it in the long run because they don't have a sense of what the long run will be. When you're 18, you think you're going to be like that for the rest of your life. And then you're 21 and you think you're going to be like that for the rest of your life. And it just keeps on staying that way until hopefully you reach an age where you realize, no, wait, everything changes. And I have to respect I have to respect that evolution and you set more manageable boundaries. I haven't reached that point yet. I'm going to, hopefully one day I'm going to. Get there. I don't think you ever get there. We, we mean, just keep falling and falling and falling and somehow making it somewhere. <laughs> well, I think that that's kind of what, I, I mean, I did, there was, like I mentioned, our illustrator's lunches, there was an illustrator who actually no longer, I mean, he got out of the industry totally. And he said the thing that he found most difficult with being an illustrator or working artist was he thought that he would get that one job and then he'd be set. He thought that he'd get that one project and then it would be easy straight. He didn't realize it was going to be a grind where it's like Sisyphus where you're pushing up the stone and then it rolls down again. And that's your career for 40 years until you can't do it anymore or whatever. And I think that that really is the hardest thing that, and you're not going to understand it when you're 18 because you don't, I mean, all you see, and this is why maybe process is so important to learn. And, you know, that's why I build it in all my projects where people have to do a lot of sketching before they do a final illustration. Because I always tell them your biggest asset is not a finished product of illustration. You're being paid for your ideas, not your final art. And your value is in being able to communicate your ideas to someone that's why you see comic strips we were talking about stuff that's just stick figures but there's comic strips that are stick figures that are very popular because they resonate so well i mean if you have you read um uh the the understanding comics book uh scott mcleod yes yes uh scott mcleod's book because that actually is the best explanation of cartooning ever the thing I love about that book is how it describes iconography and how people look at cartoon comics. And they talked about in there how people see themselves more in artwork when it's abstract than when it's a super highly rendered illustration of something. And I, that's where the appeal is. And I think that that's where the education of illustration, if you focus too much on what your final result is and not the process, you don't realize when someone pays you to do, whether you're doing a comic or you're doing a poster for a star, you know, for a licensor like Star Wars, they're not paying you just because of the rendering. They're paying you because you are good at coming up with ideas to be a solution for their problem. So even where you described going to school for mechanical engineering, the problem solving you got from there is going to be a bigger asset than anything else because you apply it to your artwork. Absolutely. Like people, like I I went on to get a master's degree and then I did half of a PhD before I left uh, to be a writer. So smart. Uh, But uh, like people ask me sometimes, like especially my mom, like, why did you waste so much time? And like, I feel like I didn't waste any time at all. Like all Mm -hmm. education, firstly, all education adds up. And if you really love to learn, then you find a way to apply all education to your life. And what engineering gave me, aside from being able to write code, which is so useful to be able to know how, like what it taught me is when you don't know what the solution is, when you have no idea what the solution might be, how do you still approach towards it? What is the process of solving a problem that you can up- implement again and again, even to completely unknown problems and figure your way out in the dark towards something that feels better? And this confidence to take on a subject that you don't know, to take on a task that is daunting, uh, to try to identify a black box that you cannot look inside. This was one of my big lessons as a control engineer is so rewarding. You will always stay with it and you will apply it again and again to so many different aspects of life. So um, I want to like I have sort of sort of a final question, which is uh. <laughs> Like, I'm really curious to know how you have also applied what urban sketching has given you 
to the work you do. So tell me a little bit about how this, do, is there a feedback loop from uh, this uh, leisure activity or mindfulness activity of urban sketching towards your illustration work, towards even teaching comics or approaching the making of comics? Has urban sketching fed back to these things that you do more seriously? I think I think the more you draw, sort of the better you are at not being precious and coming up with better ideas. So I think it it has made me a better illustrator just because of the practice and the way, the observation. And like one of the things we do each month as part of our urban sketching practice is we go to the zoo each month. And so it's great to sit and observe the animals and think about drawing them. And it's something that is beyond seeing photographs. Um, I did a book years ago called Little Red Bat, and it was about red bats. So when the editor called me, I was like, I've never seen a red bat. I don't know what a red bat is. So I actually went to a bat rescue person and went and took photos and video of him. He, This guy was really unusual. He had a house full of bats that he was re rehabbing. He would give them vaccines against rabies and he would help rehab them and then re-release them and he had a couple red bats and he would wear a he'd have his shirt over like be like a couple bats in his shirt like he'd lift up like he'd have a t-shirt let a couple bats sitting here like oh, wow. this <laughs> it was really an interesting experience but after doing that i mean this is a testament to experiencing something in real life i had to redo some of the sketches because i did not realize how bats moved I didn't realize they were so agile when they weren't flying. Like they can crawl on things and it would crawl up his arm and stuff. And so I didn't understand, even if you look at photos, you don't understand how big they are, how they move. And that is why it's so important to be able to observe things. So I think that's a long answer for saying that's how it helps with my practice of illustration or um, teaching. I mean, I always try to get my students to draw and sketch as much as possible so that right. they get used to expressing their ideas and thinking of how to do problem solving and how to think about, like, think about things more than once. Like, don't just give one solution to a problem. Think about multiple solutions. Right. Yeah, that's so true. Wow. Well, Christina, this has been a really lovely conversation. I have absolutely loved speaking to you. Yeah, I've loved talking to you too. It's been really interesting. Hopefully I haven't gone off on too many tangents. I've loved all of these tangents. Going down tangents, going down rabbit holes. This mm -hmm. is my exquisite privilege with being a podcaster. I mm -hmm. love to do it. I love to give myself this freedom to do it. And I know now for a fact that my audience loves it too. So I'm sure they're going to enjoy all of these sidetracks that we went down. They were a lot of fun. Oh, great. Well, thanks so much for asking. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to this conversation. If you have thoughts and would like to share them, join the discussion thread in my Substack newsletter. Find the link to that in the episode description. I'll see you in the next one.